Lord God Almighty, we pray that you would bless this time. Fill this place with your Holy Spirit that the words of my lips and the meditations of all our hearts might be pleasing in your sight. Amen. Grace, mercy, and peace be to you from God our Father, through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Brothers and sisters in Christ, this might come as something of a surprise to you. I mean, you'd hardly expect this of a pastor. But growing up, I was something of a goody two-shoes. All right, no lightning bolt, we can keep moving. <laughs> now I'm not talking about my teenage years. Those are stories for another time and another place. But when I was younger, I really did not want to get into trouble. And in fact, I would do anything I could to avoid getting in trouble. And so perhaps that's why this particular memory stands out so vividly to me. I was five years old in Mrs. Hoyam's kindergarten class at Holy Cross Lutheran in Dallas, Texas. And on this particular day, I was going to get in trouble for the first time at school. Now, in order to understand this story, you need a little bit of geography of my kindergarten classroom. My classroom was actually made up of two larger classrooms that were connected by a hallway that ran in the back of the rooms. And off of this hallway, there were two individual restrooms for the students to use on our restroom breaks. And on this day, one of my friends, we'll call him Tucker, had forgotten to lock the door to his restroom. And it didn't take long for some of the other boys in the class to discover this fact. And they were taking great delight, finding a lot of humor in his screams as they were continuously opening and closing the door while he was using the restroom. Now, I was not directly involved in this activity. I was standing at the edge of the hallway, watching as this was going on, waiting my turn to use the restroom. But I felt that tugging, that tug that I should do something. After all, my friend was really upset. He was literally screaming. I should step up and say something. But it was easier to stay quiet, to stay on the sidelines, to let someone else come to the rescue. And sure enough, it didn't take long for Mrs. Hoyam to swoop in and save the day. But as she was calling out the names of the students who were in trouble, I heard my name mentioned. And as a resident goody two-shoes, I felt the need to protest. But Mrs. Hoyam, I wasn't doing anything. That wasn't me. I was just standing in line waiting to use the restroom. And she gave me that look, that teacher look. You know the one I mean. Turning my complaints silent. And she asked me, Zach, did you know what you were supposed to do? My shoes had never looked so interesting in my life. 
as I looked down, tears starting to come to my eyes, my voice starting to quiver, I responded, yes, I should have stopped them. And this is the part that even 20 years later still just stands out so strongly to me. She gently said to me, Zach, that's why you're in trouble. Because you knew what you were supposed to do and didn't do it. You knew what you were supposed to do and didn't do it. Oh, those words stung at the time. Truthfully, as I think about it, it still stings a little. But I think there's something to those words. I think those words really capture something of what it means to be human, or maybe better, what it means to be Christian. I think we can all relate to that. We often know what we're supposed to do, but don't do it. This summer, we've been working through the Ten Commandments. I've only heard one of the sermons, but you guys have been listening to them all summer. And today, we're going to close those out. So could, if, I, if I could get the close of the commandments up on the screen, please. I'd like us to read these together. What does God say about all these commandments? He says, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. And the explanation, please. What does this mean? God threatens to punish all who break these commandments. Therefore, we should fear his wrath and not do anything against them. But he promises grace and every blessing to all who keep these commandments. Therefore, we should also love and trust in him and gladly do what he commands. When you stop to think about it, those are some pretty heavy words. Punishment for those who break these commands. Grace and blessing and love to those who keep them. We know these commandments. We've heard them before. We might not know the right order, but we generally know them. But all too often, instead of keeping them central in our lives, we sweep them away. We hide them. We sit in the darkness rather than trusting their light. We know what we're supposed to do, but we don't do it. And we can think of countless examples of this. Maybe it's easier to think about it as a teenager. When your mom or dad is on your case again about your grades, your curfew, your boyfriend, girlfriend, whatever, and you know that you're supposed to honor and respect your mother and father. But instead, you feel that rage, that anger boiling up inside you, and you lash out. Words sliding off your tongue that are just dripping 
with sarcasm and disrespect. Maybe it happens in the middle of the night. Maybe you wake up to the sound of your infant child screaming. And you know that you should get out of bed and take care of the problem. That you should let your spouse get some much needed rest. But instead, you roll over. Pretending you're still asleep until your spouse stumbles out of bed to solve the problem. And you dishonor your spouse in the process. Maybe it happens as we're driving through the city and we pull up to a red light and we look at the corner and see a man, dirty and disheveled, holding a sign, begging for scraps. And we turn our face away, thinking to ourselves, oh, he's probably just a con man. I don't want to enable him. We know what we're supposed to do, and we don't do it. All too often we can think of those times where we had the law in front of us, where we knew what God wanted us to do, and instead of going His way, we went our way. Where instead of trusting His word and His guide, we were our own guide. Where we sat in the darkness rather than living in the light. But what does God do? What does God do as He looks at His chosen people, the people whom He has called to be His own, and sees them repeatedly disregarding His law, repeatedly shoving aside His commands, going their own way over and over? What does he do as he sees his people taking that threat of punishment upon themselves again and again? How does he respond? I think you know this story too. It starts with a baby in a manger because there's no room for him in the inn. It starts with God breaking into his creation, taking on human flesh, taking on the human condition, becoming one of us. But this perfect son of God and son of man, Jesus of Nazareth, he will never disregard the law. He will never go his own way. He will always go the way of his father. He will keep the law perfectly. And what's more, as he does so, he will teach his followers what this law really means. That when we say, do not murder, we're saying we actually have to love our brother. That even saying we hate our brother is murder. That this law requires more of us than we can ever give. To the dismay of the religious leaders of his day, he'll heal on the Sabbath. He'll break bread with sinners, with tax collectors, with women we'd never want to see our daughters hanging around. He'll answer every question. He'll pass every test that the Sadducees and Pharisees throw at him. 
And he'll say this about the law, about why he came. In Matthew chapter 5, we'll read that Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. God didn't send his son to abolish the law. He sent Jesus to fulfill the law. And of course, that's exactly what Christ will do on a small hill just outside Jerusalem. There's a beautiful altarpiece that captures this moment that I really think captures what this moment means to the law and the prophets. And so I'd like to show that to you today. If we could get that image on the screen, please. This is an image, or one like it, that we've probably seen a lot, Jesus hanging on the cross. And some of the usual characters are present. In the bottom right corner of the altarpiece, you can see John, the beloved apostle, holding Mary, the mother of Christ. You can see Mary Magdalene at the foot of Jesus, mourning the death of her Lord and Savior. But there's someone who's a little out of place. He might be a little hard to recognize, but that man standing in the lower left corner of the screen, his disproportionately long finger pointing up to Christ, that man is John the Baptist, clothed in camel's hair, an open scroll in his hands. And while there's an entire sermon that could be preached on this image, in fact, I've heard one. It's where I first saw it. I really want to focus on John. Because what I think the artist is trying to represent here is that all the law, the Ten Commandments, and all the prophets culminating in John the Baptist, the last and greatest prophet, are pointing to this moment because this is the fulfillment of the law. This moment is when the punishment that God promised for you and me would be placed on Christ in our stead. This is the moment where all our failings, all our flaws, all our mistakes, our failure to live up to the law and its standards in our lives would be placed on Christ. This is the moment that God sent his son for, not to condemn the world, but to save it. This is the moment that the law and the prophets have all been pointing forward to where they scream out, this is the Christ, the Son of God, who fulfilled the law for you, who died for you. And of course, we know that Christ fulfilled the law because three days later, he would rise again. He would be vindicated by his Father Proof that this man kept the law perfectly because not even death could hold him. 
Sin, death, and the devil, they would all be defeated as Christ rose victorious from the grave, proclaiming his victory. He would appear to his disciples. He would tell them to go to a mountain in Galilee, and upon that mountain, he would give them one last commandment and one last promise. We read in the last chapter of Matthew that Jesus would say to his followers, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Brothers and sisters in Christ, this is where you come into the story. You see, on that day, as the disciples stood there, slack-jawed, looking up into the heavens where Christ had ascended, they had no clue what was going to happen next. But Christ knew. Christ knew that those followers of his would take his words, his commandments, seriously. Not always, not perfectly, but they would strive to make those commandments a part of their lives. The disciples didn't know it, but Christ knew what he was starting on that mountain in Galilee. He knew he was starting his church, a church that would begin a long, winding journey through wars and rumors of wars, through persecutions and trials, across continents and over oceans until it finally made its way to Grace Lutheran in Menominee Falls, Wisconsin. The disciples didn't know it, but Christ knew that one day you would be standing in this sanctuary or perhaps at the Kenwood campus, or perhaps in another sanctuary altogether, or maybe even a hospital room. And maybe you weren't even standing. Maybe like Carter just 30 minutes ago, you were held in your mother's arms, and water was poured over your heads, and the pastor said to you, I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And in that moment, Christ's story became your story. You were brought into the story of salvation and grace and sacrifice. Christ's death and resurrection became your death and resurrection. Christ's victory became your victory. Christ's Father became your Father as you were brought into this family of faith. He placed his name upon you and he called you his own and he made you a baptized child of God. The disciples didn't know it, but Christ knew that one day you would be sitting here in these pews hearing again of his love for you, of how Christ fulfilled the law for you, of how Christ died for you. So what now? 
if that message of salvation and love and grace is of the utmost importance. And I think that it is. What does that mean for the law in our lives? If Christ fulfilled that law once and for all, are we still meant to follow it? Is it still meant to be important to us as the family of faith? Maybe like Paul suggested nearly 2,000 years ago in the book of Romans, maybe we should just go on sinning so that that grace, that love can just abound even more in our lives. It doesn't sound like a terrible idea. But thankfully, Paul gives us a resoundingly clear answer to that question. By no means. You see, brothers and sisters in Christ, when we are brought into this family, the Apostle Paul or the Apostle John in John chapter 3, they promise that we are changed. Not perfectly, not fully. That won't come until the end. But you and I have been changed by the waters of baptism, by the name of Christ put upon us, by the promise of the Spirit in our hearts. We've been changed. That old sinful part of us that always wants to shove the law away, that wants to hide it, that wants to turn and go our own way, that part of us has been crucified with Christ. It has died. And a new person has been resurrected. A new person that recognizes the gift of the law for what it is. A gift. A blessing from God. It is that gift of the Spirit in our lives that enables a five-year-old to know the difference between right and wrong. And hopefully your five-year-olds do a better job than I did and stand up to bullying. It is that gift of the Spirit of Christ in our lives that empowers us to honor our fathers and mothers. It is that gift that strengthens us to honor and love our spouses to give generously to our neighbor who is in need, to love the world around us rather than hate it, to come to church on Sunday morning, to love God's way more than our way. It is Christ's good work given to us in baptism that makes good works such an important part of our lives as Christians. And so we do not sweep away this law of God. We don't hide it. We don't sit in the dark. Instead, we bring that law out and we cherish it. We hold it close. We polish it. We let it shine in our lives by the power of the Spirit. We trust God's way rather than our way. And so, yes, the Spirit will continue to put these commandments, the law of God, the Word of God in our midst. He will continue to put it before us to shape and to mold us into the family of faith which we have been called to be. And what does that family look like? A family that points. Not proudly to ourselves, not in condemnation at the world around us, but like the prophets 
like John the Baptist, like the apostles, like the law itself, we point to the fulfillment of the law. We point to Christ. Amen.